0: There is something to look forward to if we're like able to collectively come together to fight, whether it's housing injustice or the scourge of social media. The question is, are we willing to put aside our hyper-individualist interests for the sake of the collective?
1: Hello, and welcome to Tete-a-Tete, the Rice Architecture podcast series I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and today's episode features designer and filmmaker Giorgio Angelini. After a career as a touring musician, Giorgio enrolled in the Masters of Architecture program at Rice University during the height of the 2008 real estate crisis. It was during this time that Giorgio got the inspiration for his directorial debut, Owned, A Tale of Two Americas. Giorgio also has worked for the boutique architecture firm Sean Shea, and he continues to practice architecture in Los Angeles with fellow Rice Architecture alum, Mary Casper. Giorgio's latest film, Feels Good Man, created with his producing partner, Arthur Jones, was released in August of 2020. We're excited to share a conversation with Giorgio about getting into filmmaking after architecture school, home ownership in the U.S., and the power of memes, among other things. Let's dive in. Thanks for being on the podcast today, Giorgio.
0: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Starting off, you've tried your hand at a number of skills. You've toured with the band, studied and worked as an architect, and now you're producing, directing, and even doing cinematography and films. So can you talk a little bit more about how you kind of tackled each new endeavor and what advice you have maybe for students, especially who are looking to apply their skills and creativity in new ways?
0: Sure. Well, I guess that's the beauty of option one, right? That's the kind of people that the program attracts. I definitely see that it produces completely different kinds of designers. And it's interesting, especially in the second year, when you get paired with option two students and you kind of get to collaborate in ways and learn from other students that have a you know completely different background than you. Anyway, for my part, (laughs) I don't know that like anything that I've done has ever been totally planned. I was playing music a lot in college and the band I was in seemed to be having some successes. And it was the early 2000s, mid 2000s. And I really wanted to move to New York because like TV on the radio was happening. The Strokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like a really vibrant scene and it really... At that point, it felt like you were at the center of the universe in New York, walking the Lower East Side, bumping into people that will change your life forever. And it sounds a little bit cheesy to say in retrospect, but it really did feel like you were kind of living in a movie, for better or worse. And I'm like really grateful that I had that experience because it feels like, I don't know, like that doesn't really happen anymore. I mean, obviously, COVID aside, music just gets produced much differently. The communities around it tend to be more online now. Uh, I'm sure part of it is just because I'm older and not as plugged in, but it definitely feels like there's not As much of a scene anymore but anyway that said like because of that experience i got to tour not just around the country quite a bit but like around the world whatever minuscule salary i had i really was given the opportunity to visit most of europe and japan several times over that was an invaluable experience for me and my sort of shift into architecture was quite accidental. It it really came at the end of uh, a really long touring cycle and sort of the intersection of that and the housing crisis, which actually ended up having like a really acute, rapid negative effect on the touring market. Like just overnight clubs just didn't have money to offer bands for touring. You basically were doing it completely speculatively. No one could like guarantee you any money. And then also I got fired from the band (laughs) I was playing it at the time. And So I was just kind of like looking around for the first time in my life at, at like 28, kind of looking back at the last 10 years and being like, well, this was really fun, but it all felt like it just kind of got taken away from me overnight. Also at that point, streaming was becoming a thing and it was a very precarious moment to be a working musician. And but I knew that I wanted to like continue being in the creative world and had always wanted to go into film, but never really knew how to do it because there's no real path to becoming a director. The barrier of entry is insane. But so my mother encouraged me to, instead of go to film school, to go to architecture school, because her perspective was like, architecture school is nothing if not a study in creative process. And I think she, like, I think all good mothers should do is like recognize something in their children that they need or that are missing. And, uh, she was very right. And, uh, You know, that year, I think, was the biggest influx of applications to graduate schools. And because of the housing crisis, everyone was just going back to school. So luckily, I got into Rice and yeah, it just intersected with all these really incredible things like Sarah Whiting had just become the Dean. And it was just really incredible to be there during the crisis and getting to hear from these really famous architects who were all kind of reeling in the wake of this global economic collapse. Architects were asking themselves a lot of difficult questions. Some of them were not asking themselves questions at all, which was a bit disappointing. Uh, I got into quite a, a fracas at one point. When I th- I think I asked Sylvia Levin, she was the first speaker uh, to speak under Dean Whiting's tenure. And she was talking about her book, Kissing Architecture. And it's like the moment felt very strange. I'm like, the world is in disarray. Architects have some blame because we are nothing if not desire creators. And like, what the hell are these desires that we've created in the marketplace? We're just being used as this tool for capital accumulation. And like I said, how, how can you reconcile the decadence of it all? It just seemed like such a detached moment. And I'm not sure that we still ever came out of it. But that was also kind of, how OWN started, because my third year uh, as a grad student, I got to apply for a travel fellowship. And I'd read this article about this abandoned McMansion development project in Inland Empire, California. And it was like a Bloomberg article, as if I recall correctly. But weirdly, there was no photographs attached to it. But the description of the space was insane. And I was like, well, I want to go take the photographs for this article that they probably didn't have a budget for. And that's why they're not there. So... Luckily, Rice agreed to give me some money to go out there. And I'd never been to Inland Empire, but it's basically everything east of LA in the desert. And it's an area that used to be replete with, with orange groves. That's the crop that basically like built Riverside. And I get to this development site and it's like parcel after parcel after parcel of like burnt down orange groves, like the charred remains of these trees standing next to on the other side of the street, like these half built McMansions. And it was a really alienating experience. Like it was hard to explain how alone I felt and how weirdly dystopic it all felt. Anyway, coming out of grad school, that is what ended up turning into owned. And luckily I I worked for Troy Shahm and he was really gracious and giving me time off throughout the years to like film this thing. And it just constantly evolved from there. You know, architecture and film are really related in the sense that you're taking a two dimensional idea and three dimensionalizing it. You're having to negotiate between the kind of capital interests of investors and your own artistic ambitions. And you're wrangling these other kind of technicians to create something that's really just in your head. That's coming from a piece of paper. In the case of architecture, it's a, you know, obviously floor plan or section or whatever. And in film, even in documentary, it's a script. And so I think they tug at very similar parts of the brain. So I'm not sure that I could have made that film without having gone to architecture school. I'm not sure I could be making any film at all, really, without having gone to architecture school.
1: Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense, though. Like, we all learn to kind of develop a narrative for our project and why we set it up. And that's similar to films. You might have had this kind of inspiration looking at all of those housing tracts in California's Inland Empire, but one image isn't the entire film necessarily. There's a lot more that goes into crafting a whole narrative.
0: Totally. And I just kept on coming back to this thing that Sarah told us very early on. I think it was like her inaugural speech to the school but she said architecture is political. And I remember it causing like like a really strong reaction in a few people in my cohort who were just like, what does that mean? Why is architecture political? And I was like, well, I mean, I think she made her case, but it's like you're making permanent decisions for people's lives and how they interact with the city. You're dealing with capital flows and how to properly allocate those and whose interests are you serving in your design? I mean, these are things, if you're not making political architecture, then you're just ceding every single decision over to someone else. And it's, I would say, similar with any kind of art form, certainly film. And that's definitely like how I've approached all of my film projects, regardless of their documentaries or not, they always have a kind of political position, I would say.
1: Yeah, and getting a little bit into that. So you talked about how you kind of took all these photographs of inland empire and that started to plant the seeds for your documentary owned A Tale of Two Americas, but then the final film really looks at the development of racist post-war housing policies and how that created a racial divide in home ownership and then was connected to suburbs and cities. And then the film also talks about the urban uprisings that were happening around the time when Michael Brown and Freddie Gray were both murdered in Ferguson and Baltimore, respectively. How did the full, larger narrative develop after that initial research ended?
0: I mean, I guess to post-rationalize, thankfully, my film was self-funded, so I could only move at the pace at which I was earning money (laughs) to make the film. So... Part of it was just history changing around me. I think at first, when I went to Inland Empire, the initial interest in the film was really more about antagonizing this idea that we had kind of recovered when i was pitching the film in the early days to granting bodies I'm like well everyone's already done the film about the housing crisis and the recovery and like but not really because nothing's really changed i mean what i'm talking about is something much more fundamental which is just like how we've commodified the square foot and like turned the home into this globally traded commodity and then the nuance of that it's a very simple decision and like what that ends up producing the ori- original idea of the film was really more of like Less of a narrative and more of a kind of poetic polemic about home ownership. something in the vein of a film that I kept on referring to back then a lot, which is really great and everyone should watch. It's called Manufactured Landscapes. It's mostly visual. I mean, there's almost no dialogue. But, you know, as you mentioned, Michael Brown was murdered and that was like two years, I think, maybe into the process of making Owned, which at that point was called Cost Per Square Foot. And it started to become really hyper aware that like I couldn't tell that kind of social critique of suburbia without telling the other side of the story. And it seemed to me that the real story there was this untold story about the yin and yang that like one came at the expense of the other. And people at that point still weren't making that connection. That's when the kind of shifts started to happen. I just didn't really fully understand how to thread the needle. And I started writing grant proposals again for that version of the film. And people were like, but what does one have to do with the other? Like, I don't get it. Like, what does suburbia have to do with inner city America? And it seems weird to say that today because thankfully everyone very clearly sees that connection, but it really wasn't until Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, at least from my perspective, when he wrote the case for reparations in the Atlantic, Just talking about reparations in terms of housing policy and just what Black Americans were denied coming out of World War II. And the very clear case to be made for like how much wealth the white middle class of America earned over that same period just by being given free loans. And it wasn't until that article came out that I finally felt like, again, back to something Sarah said when we were in thesis. She's like, when you come up with a thesis... If you think of like thesis as a uh, as a banquet, you never want to be sitting alone at your own table. If your table is your idea, you want to be at a table with other people who are like contributing to the story. That was like a real reifying moment for me and my thought process about the film. And that just became a really natural progression, again, just in terms of the glacial pace of me. <laughs> Being able to make the film because of the restrictions of the funding and the fact that none of these granting bodies thought that the film was worthy. There, In, in a sense, like I'm actually kind of grateful because if I had made the film any quicker, I think I would have missed actually the better story.
1: Yeah, I definitely think, I mean, I've seen the film a couple of times and I feel like it is great in that it makes a lot of connections that I think, like you said, not everyone had noticed at the time. And I think those connections have been made a lot more clear to us, but I think it was really helpful in priming some of the other education that at least I was doing. And I feel like hopefully a lot of my colleagues at Rice were able to see the film too and kind of get the same understanding.
0: Well, and it's like back to this idea of architecture being political. There was a very deliberate reason for finding the Gregory Ain story. I found Gregory Ain very early in the process of making the film. Again, when it was just a visual film, those homes are beautiful, but they're tiny and they're all about the space and efficiency. And they just became these really fun kaleidoscopes through which to film. But I carried that story with me throughout the entire process of the film. And I was always banging my head against the wall, being like, How how can I keep the Gregory Ain part of the story in now that it's the film about? racial justice. And then I met Gregory Ains' daughter and she was like, oh yeah, the uh, the FBI like basically tried to have him killed. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> and so, you know, there's that little blip in the film where she shows you like the stack of papers of all that she did the freedom of information request and saw all of like, he got wrapped up basically in the sort of Hollywood blackball era of just any socialists in Hollywood were just getting blackballed, whether it was in film or, or architecture. But he ended up serving as a really great foil to William Levitt in Levittown. This is one regret. I didn't come across this quote until after we finished the film. But William Levitt said, when asked specifically about the racial exclusivity of his neighborhoods, he basically passed it off to society. He's like, we can fix the race problem, America, or we can fix the housing problem, but we can't do both. You know, that's specifically what Gregory Yane was trying to do. And maybe, I don't know, maybe William Levitt was right. Maybe he was right in a cynical kind of way, just to say like, people aren't ready for this shit. I don't know. I think you have to kind of conclude that maybe he was right because obviously Gregory Ain basically had HUD funding withheld from him and his, all of his projects at that point had to get privately funded. Yeah. It's a crazy story.
1: Well, I mean, that goes to the importance, I guess, of architecture really being political is if they saw kind of what Gregory Ain was doing and they, the FBI was like, well, we have to shut this down. This isn't,
0: Yeah, well, it was like a a two pronged approach. You have like the federal government, the FHA basically saying, look, unless you make these homes racially exclusive, we can't give you government insurance, like government financing. And then banks aren't going to issue loans to a program that isn't backed by the FHA. Basically, you know, this is the way that systemic racism has often worked is like, you're winking at the problem, right? You're like, oh, well, we're not telling you you can't build homes for Black residents. We're just telling you that we can only, you know, insure them if they're not there because we've deemed them to be like a financial liability, even though there's never been any data to support that, of course.
1: You kind of started to talk about this a little bit when you are talking about reading the case for reparations. And I also think the film really underscores the importance of home ownership and how it left out a whole part of the population in the United States and really allowed the white middle class to get a lot of generational wealth. And then Black Americans didn't have access to that. I wonder, after your experiences working on the film, how do you think housing policy can really be reformed to make home ownership more equitable?
0: Yeah, I I don't. Yeah, we have to. I mean, we can't. (laughs) We have to try. But, you know, it's still really, really bad. Just like last month, this black family was they were either trying to get a line of home equity or they were trying to list their home. And they had an appraiser come to their house and the appraiser appraised the home for a value that was very low. And they were like, this seems very weird. And so then they decided to get their white friends to pose as the owners and get another appraiser in the same company to come and appraise the house. And the second appraisal was double the price just because it was, you know, quote unquote, a white family and it was all faked. That's insane, right? Because that's a perfect example of how something that seems perfunctory and boring actually has huge impact. The power of an appraiser is basically the power of someone to tell you how much money you have. Right, if you if we've built a society and an economy in America where we've told people that their key to wealth accumulation and their key to a safe retirement is in the equity you build in your home, if an appraiser comes to a black family and just arbitrarily says that their house is worth half of what it is, you're basically stealing money from people. You're not basically, you are. You are literally stealing money from people. So you know, I don't know how you fix something like that. What they were doing was illegal. I would hope that there could maybe just be more mechanisms for for oversight of that stuff. But more directly, I think there should be reparations paid. Like these are very calculable things. I think I went into the film feeling very cynical about the idea of homeownership. And I think I came out of it actually very pro-homeownership, but just a different perspective. Like it wasn't until I met Greg Butler in Baltimore and I learned that he was working with his family and flipping houses and stuff that I like, there was just, like a first of all, just like an incredible irony to that. But also, you know, I think I was actually paradoxically looking at homeownership from a very privileged perspective and I was very much discounting the societal importance of having a stake in the system. And um, Greg and his story really opened my eyes to that. And I think the conclusion I came to was like, homeownership is ultimately good. It's just, we have to create a system that both accounts for the previous misdeeds and builds a system that sort of takes away the perniciousness of like a hyper-commoditized homeownership society. Like we have to create new models for homeownership. There should be options. If you want to buy a home today, you basically have no choice other than to play in the casino. One thing I would really be interested in testing in the future is like building a cooperative housing model where if you give someone an option, like House A, House B. House A is the traditional casino model that you everyone's familiar with. That house is worth $200,000 and House B is in this cooperative system where, you know, because all of this of course is we're, we're constructing the games for our own financialization, right? Like this is something people often forget when you try to change the game. Well, you can't do that. It's like, well, it's all imaginary. We, we we construct these systems in our own image. So, like if you have House B, which is in a cooperative system where it basically says these homes will not accrue in value or like they only accrue in parity with inflation and you have to contribute to the maintenance. And then when you sell it, you just get back what you put in. You know, would you choose house A or House B? I think a lot people, a lot of people would choose house B just knowing that their value judgment they're making on a home is simply in security, not in the potential to make huge sums of money by like just timing the market right and picking the right neighborhood. These are the systems that lead to gentrification. These are the systems that lead to toxic loan culture. When you, the concept of a home is like exclusively tied to wealth accumulation. It teases out the worst in us. And on the social side, it teases out the racism because of course, if you've grown up thinking that living near black people or people of color brings your property values down, then you're going to do everything you can to keep those people out, even though there's obviously no data that supports that. And then like on the financialization side, if all you see the home is not in its functional value to give you shelter and security, but to make you rich, you know, you're going to be a victim of all sorts of refinance schemes and all that kind of stuff that American housing is uh, replete with.
1: Yeah, I feel like there are a lot of problems with just the financial aspect of housing and kind of how we approach those systems. But I'm wondering, what do you think architects can, what is their agency in this situation? How can they participate in making this better?
0: I don't know. It's like a lot of people have written about this better than I have, I'm sure. But it was not that long ago that architects were seen as the visioneers of the world. You had a great amount of power to visualize our futures. And it was a lot of dynamism involved. Disney literally had the house of the future. There was like a perspective that the house was this machine that would really change society. And it was the nexus of design and technology and functionality and all these things. And now it's really instructive to look at the exhibits of the house of the future from back in the fifties versus the photos that I came across. I don't even know if the exhibit exists anymore, but it's essentially just like a, you know, HGTV McMansion slapped together garbage <laughs> you know, with like DAL tile and whatever corporate sponsors are available. I think it says a lot about our role as architects in that we've kind of seeded, our cultural value over to developers. And I think in the same way that the single family home and suburbia was pitched to America as this object of desire, that was the design. That was something that architects participated in. In the same way, we can like start changing those desires. I think we take for granted the fact that people's opinions on these kinds of things actually change and are very fluid. And we're not doing enough to offer people different incentives, but the ones that we are, are always under the auspice of financialization, right? Like the whole tiny house movement is a response to like, oh, homes are expensive. So let's just make them smaller. And it's like, to me, that is the worst response to it's like, you should feel happy living in a 300 square foot box, you know, live in your own personal prison. But it's like, no, that's the wrong, <laughs> that's the wrong perspective. People should have dignity to live in an appropriate amount of space. It doesn't mean we have to have like 5,000 square foot McMansions, but like it is to say that people should be able to afford an appropriate sized home and they shouldn't feel like they're at the whims of a financialized marketplace that they have no control over. They're at the whims of these global financiers. So in terms of what architects can do, I think we should get more involved in development I think there's a perception that architects should be taking on more responsibilities, I think, because we're the only discipline in general, but specifically in the world of construction that actually synthesizes all of these different disparate ideas of culture, landscape, ecologies, engineering, and financing, right? No one in the chain that creates all these things is thinking about those things other than architects. So it stands to reason that we should be the people that are making the decisions, not the developer who's, again, just an extension of capital. It's no surprise then that cities look the way they look. I think we should bring back the House of the Future as the program and give people compelling reasons to engage.
1: It is interesting to think that we have gone from maybe the House of the Future to the huge McMansion. And then now there's also space for that like really tiny house. And it's been less than 100 years for all of those things. So there's no saying that we can't kind of push things back to like a, a better place that would make more sense for everyone and kind of benefit everyone in the end.
0: Yeah, there was, there was a set of data points that was the kind of guiding principles of the film. The average size of the family in 1950 was something like three and a half people. And today it's two and a half. And the average size of the single family home in 1950 was something like 950 square feet. And today it's almost 3000. So the size of the home has tripled, but the family has lost a whole human. So you have fewer people occupying more space. And the more you think about it, the more depressing it feels because like you're starting to feel that same alienation that I felt when I went to Inland Empire, I think is like buried inside that data point. Right. It's like we're more alone. We're more online in you know, ticky tacky air conditioned boxes completely separated from our families, each in their own individual cell you know, all of that is like a recipe for alienation. So quite frankly, it's not like surprising that you have a bunch of people who just show up on the footsteps of the Capitol throwing smoke bombs and trying to, it's like the machine is broken. People are lonely and they're looking for answers. And the only answers they're being given is, uh, you know, QAnon. That's basically, so to answer your question, architecture needs to compete with QAnon. That's 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 really the conclusion.
1: That boils it down to one succinct point. I think though, it's a good segue to maybe comparing owned and feels good man, because I feel like they initially seem like they're about maybe disparate subjects because you have on one side racism and specifically capitalism and the U.S. post-war housing market. And then on the other side, you have the creator of Pepe the Frog and kind of how that symbol was then co-opted by the far right. But I think there are parallels in the ways both films kind of deal with commodification and its impacts on society and an alienation. And I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit more about kind of what you see as the connection between the subject matter of those
0: two films. Yeah. I didn't really occur to me the overt connections really until fairly recently. Like there's stylistic connections for sure, but I think they both are films that talk about the commoditization specifically of infrastructures and In owned. It's about physical infrastructures and in Feels Good Man, it's about virtual or digital infrastructures. But what you see in both systems is that they both seek to segregate people, alienate them, and extract wealth from them in different ways. And one is the space economy, and the other one's the attention economy. The systems are eerily similar in both cases, actually.
1: Well, this is great that you even said there are stylistic parallels because I wanted to talk about that. So, Owned, is you describe it as a fever dream kind of film, but then the descent into the dark side of meme culture that's shown in Feels Good Man is already kind of inherently trippy and there's all these animation sequences in the film. Some of the sequences in both and some of the elements of scoring feel tonally very similar. And I'm wondering, do you think this was a conscious effort to develop them in an analogous way? Like, is that part of what you're trying to develop stylistically so they all fall into maybe an arc of your films?
0: A canon? Yeah, maybe. The use of archival by people like Adam Curtis, who have been hugely influential to me and owned, I was like you know, you could make a purely archival film version of own and it would be interesting. But I was like more interested in seeing how you can use archival to generate a set of kind of antagonizing paradoxes opposite to Adam Curtis, who he narrates his own films and he writes beautifully. And that's great. I did not want himself in the film. For me personally, I just think it's kind of a crutch in a sense. I mean, it works for Adam Curtis because he's talking about incredibly heady things and it just works. But I wanted to see If there was a more nuanced way of having people come to their own conclusions and then using archival work as a way to kind of bookend ideas. It wasn't until I met my editor, Drew Blattman, that I was able to finally see that on screen. Because I'd been filming for five years, but I'd never really been playing that much with the archival up until that point. When I first pitched in the project, I was like, you know, there's all these interviews and facts and narrative arcs, but I want to see the America dream playing itself on screen over the exact same kind of time horizon and see how that dream turns into a bit of a nightmare and kind of see the stuff that we film and the archival kind of play back and forth with one of kind of expose the lie. That to me is like the power of using that. And Drew Blattman was also one of our editors on feels good, man. That film is specifically about memes. So you're like inherently using archival because that's, essentially what memes are they're just like capturing history in real time they're super fascinating for that reason so it was maybe a more literal translation in that sense there was maybe a little bit less nuance but also much more fun in just the discovery process of like which memes to use and like how to intersperse them and how to like play them against one another
1: watching both of them it seems like memes and ads they're kind of like the same
0: yes they're kind
1: of like the same yes. thing as what's happening at the end of the day because at these two different moments in time, there's like a proliferation of ad culture. And then there's now like a proliferation of meme culture. Both of the films are getting at how we're just, I mean, I guess now since we have ads and memes, we're faced with like a double onslaught. Yes. Both of them are two different points in time. There's just this onslaught of images that you have to deal with every day and the dark side of both of
0: those. Well, thank you for saying that because now I'm remembering what I wanted to say. That that Matt Fury, the creator of Peppa the Frog, his comic book that Pepe was featured in, Boys Clip, is essentially his response to growing up as a Gen X kid and his response to 80s TV ads like, where's the beef? And all these kind of slogans and stuff. You know, we have that animated sequence and Feels Good Man of, of the Garbage World. And a sense, Owned was the documentary about the garbage world. And you're totally right. Like memes and ads occupy similar space in our brains and they operate similarly in the sense of repetition. I mean, I love memes. I follow a lot of great meme accounts, but it's also what's very scary about memes because I think the way that they spread and the way that they are repeated and not just repeated, but then built upon, it makes it so it's like an ad that you are also participating in and that you are also rewarded for in participating in because if someone big shares one of your memes, like say a president, that can be life-changing to you. In the political world, memes kind of invert the relationship between politician and a constituent, whereas like the constituent typically would be a passive receiver of a political information. Now with meme culture, they have the potential to drive the conversation. And in some cases, that's great. The BLM movement last July was the most popular owned has ever been as most times it was ever seen, even though it had been out for two years. And a lot of people will justifiably criticize something like the posting of a black square as a kind of empty gesture of solidarity. But there is a collective power to that, right? That like spreading that meme also meant that mainstream America suddenly felt safe to come out of whatever emotional hovel they were inside of. And the numbers were incredible. Overnight, practically, the polling for support of Black Lives Matter flipped from like 40, 60 to 60, 40 in the span of like a month. That's insane. And I feel like memes contributed greatly to that. Similarly, Memes are also empty calories in terms of the kind of intellectual content behind them. And so you also kind of see how memes create like a factionalized political collective of people who just kind of identify with images and there's not really much beyond that surface. And so it's also kind of quite concerning because, of course, there's also like a kind of radicalization side to the way that memes operate too that obviously QAnon directly plays into...
1: Yeah, Feels Good Man. Also, it came out in August. And now in January, we had the Capitol insurrection. So it it was interesting watching that last week, because the film really does make the point. And I think, well, also people at the time were making the point, but they were saying, this is not going to get better if we just keep leaving things be. And then it was just interesting watching the film, knowing that that had happened and being like, well, they were right. This is what has happened now.
0: Yeah, I mean, to me, Feels Good Man is about understanding how the internet operates and standing up to it for a lot of especially younger people when the film came out you know we were concerned how people would respond to the film for a variety of reasons but for younger audiences they saw the film as like thank god someone's finally telling the story of our generation and a feeling that the internet had been stolen from them those systems that control the internet now which are partly if not wholly part of the perils of the commoditization of the internet and social media And the attention economy is that you're rewarded through vitriol, right? And if you're on if you're someone who spends an inordinate amount of time on the internet and you build your personal value in your engagements and your retweets and your likes, you're gonna play by that system's rules. And the rules right now are really one that are not about nuanced conversation, they're not about connectivity. They're about basically you're either being bullied or you are the bully. That to me is like the purest distillation of what the internet is right now. And Feels Good Man is basically a film that hopefully tries to remind us that like those are choices we make. And the problem now as our real lives and our internet lives are starting to become so deeply enmeshed is that a lot of people can't see the difference between those two worlds. And the culture of the internet is now spilling out into real life. And of course, that's why we have the capital rights, which were essentially just like a 4chan post come to life with doddering retired plumbers just kind of walking around with their eyes glazed over holding a selfie stick and then actual militant psychopaths looking to kill people. Yeah. Most all of this is like made possible by memes, basically. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Maybe to end on more of like a positive note. Yeah. (laughs) What do you, where do you see yourself going next? Like what topics... Are you interested in pursuing? Or I guess what topics are you working on? And at any point, do you think you'll kind of expand on some of the themes that were covered in Owned and Pepe?
0: For sure. Yeah. I mean, so I'm working with my creative partner, Arthur. We did Feels Good Man. Arthur also did the animations on Owned. Yes, we're working on a project that is in a similar realm. We'll see if it gets off the ground. But, you know, we're also working on animated projects and I'm writing a script with a writer friend of mine. It's based off of her memoir, but they are all political in one sense or another. And they are all, especially the scripted project, deeply involved in sort of understanding this particular moment that we're in right now, interrogating the functional use value of the internet and like whether it's actually been a net positive for humanity, (laughs) but in a scripted project, obviously can be less on the nose, so I'm really excited about that one.
1: Well, we'll be looking out.
0: But feels good, man, is a hopeful story. That was something we like really made. We did.
1: Yeah, it ends. It ends on a positive note. Yeah. But I. I mean, I didn't know about Pepe being used in the.
0: Oh, uh, the Hong Kong protest. Yeah. Well, and it shows you the power of collectivism and the fact that there is something to look forward to if we're like able to collectively come together to fight, whether it's housing injustice or the scourge of social media. The question is, are we willing to put aside our hyper-individualist interests for the sake of the collective? And I think, I don't know, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens coming out of COVID, hopefully coming out of COVID. (laughs) Not on wood, (laughs) but it's almost like biology giving us a reminder that you can't be a (laughs) hyper-individualist. Some things require collective solutions because they're collective problems. And the moment that we're in right now could not be any more stark. Donald Trump proposed magical solutions to problems that required like tangible solutions. And he did so because to be a hyper individualist, you have to think magically. You're trying to force a, a round peg into a square hole, right? And so the moment we're in now, whether it's President Biden himself or us as architects is to decide how we want to write the course because it's abundantly clear that we can't continue down the same path. I'm really glad that Pritzker Prize was oh God, I'm horrible with names, was, award, was awarded to a
1: group. Yes,
0: was awarded to a group that um that takes that project on directly. You know, I think that's great. I think we just can't. Take for granted that these systems are intractable and unchangeable because, of of course, we got here. They haven't always been this way. So um, we have to have the faith in believing that. I guess back to the Feels Good Man ending. I think when you make movies about technology, it's very often the trope that the robots win in the end. And that was something we really didn't want to do because A, I don't think it's true. And B, it lets you off the hook, I think, as a human. It reinforces this idea of apathy. And that's what I really hate about social media. Uh, is that it encourages people to be apathetic and cynical because it's good for the likes. And I say this for wonderful meme accounts on both. Well, there's no wonderful right wing meme accounts, but there are some wonderful left wing meme accounts that I agree with, but that are also trapped in this cyclical loop of apathy and cynicism. And at a certain point, you just got to offer fucking solutions, man. I don't care about your likes. I don't care about your retweets. I don't care about, you know, your fan engagement. If you're not here to offer solutions, GTFO, as someone in my option one cohort once said when presenting his first year project.
1: Oh, okay. (laughs) they said it best, baby. (laughs) You've proven even no matter what you end up doing creatively or or not, even if you don't think it is political, there is some connection to that and you have to figure out how you're going to engage with those systems and how you're going to, basically what kind of stand you're going to take.
0: For sure. It's just, I think what the last year hopefully has made clear to a lot of people is that and often this is a position that middle class or wealthy white Americans often say is that, Oh, I'm not a political person as not feasible anymore. You're either maintaining the status quo through your passivity or you're part of the solution. And that was also the story of Matt. I think Matt is a guy who didn't choose to be in the situation he was in. He was reluctantly thrown into it. And he finally realized that he had agency. It took him a long time to figure out how to, get that agency, but like he got up off the proverbial couch and he did something about it. And I think that's the same message across both films and the way I hope to like engage in any other kind of future project.
1: It's a good way to operate. The film shows it took Matt a while, but he eventually realized what was happening. He took a stand. It doesn't matter how long it takes you, but you got to get up there and go sometimes.
0: Yeah. In terms back to your earlier question about what architects can do. You don't have to like reinvent the American housing system to affect change. You can also like be in a meeting with a developer and ask them, hey, have you thought about how to raise funds for affordable units? Like, have you considered this? Ask the question. The reason these problems are promulgated is because people aren't asking the questions. If there's one thing that architects should be doing more of that we're well adept at doing, is asking those questions. That's such a simple thing to do. I think we should have the courage to be that voice in a room and that collectively. <laughs> can really change shit. Don't beat yourself up because you're you're never gonna like take down Amazon. Maybe you can like, hey, hey, we can get there.
1: Yeah you gotta start somewhere.
0: Yeah exactly.
1: <laughs> Thanks for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it.
0: Right on. Well, thank you for having me.
1: For more information on Giorgio Angelini, please visit his website at GiorgioAngelini.co. Owned and Feels Good Man are both available to rent on most digital platforms. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a review. And don't forget to subscribe to our page on your favorite platforms to keep up with new releases. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and this has
0: been Tete a Tete.